Welcome to The Practice Podcast, a show created by lawyers to help lawyers in life and business without all the complicated lawyer language. Let's welcome Bast Amron founders and your hosts, Jeff Bast and Brett Amron. This is Brett Amron and welcome to The Practice Podcast. And I am Jeff Bast and today we have a very special guest. One of our own attorneys, Mr. Jeremy Hart, who is a senior counsel at Bass Damron and has been practicing law as a commercial litigator for over 35 years. Jeremy's experience has run the gamut of state and federal court litigation, and he's been a big firm lawyer or a small firm lawyer. He's seen it all. So welcome, Jeremy. Hello. Thanks very much for having me. Welcome, Jeremy. Yeah. Jeremy's the guy in our firm who we send to court on the most difficult hearings because as you can hear his accent, he just sounds like he knows what he's talking about. So my favorite, if I may start with a little anecdote, my favorite Jeremy Hart moment, I was sitting in deposition watching him depose a witness and with his wonderfully elegant accent. And he looked at the witness and he said, you're ignorant on that issue. And I know what he meant. Like, you don't know anything about what you're saying. And he just kept saying, but you're ignorant. And the witness just started getting, you could see the red. The witness getting came come from his neck up to the top of his head. And I was just sitting with a big grin on my face. Because even though you were saying that, it just sounded so nice. It wasn't even that bad. Yes, Hank, I remember that deposition very yes. well. And that witness got me rather upset because he was being so rude about our client. Needlessly rude about our yeah. client. So one thing I did to needle him was that. But the other thing was he <laughs> talked about something our client had done. And I said, well, you were just a little boy back then. Because <laughs> our client was an older lawyer. And this was a younger lawyer who was one yeah. of his partners. The case actually ended up very well, thanks to Brett's leadership okay. in that case. We got a stunningly good result. And it was one of my first experiences here at Bast Amarillo. It, it was, it yeah. was. So we like to throw, as Jeff said, we like to throw Jeremy into the difficult ones. <laughs> But not just difficult cases, but sometimes with difficult clients and difficult opposing counsel. And in part, and we'll get to this a little bit later, is because he has a tendency, as we all say around here, to keep calm when the fire is sort of burning around him. Well, I give that impression, I guess. <laughs> right. That's a part of what we do that's, is we give impressions. That's right. That's, right, that's yeah. right. That's a large part of it. But we want to start first with you spent the majority of your illustrious and lengthy career at big law and then made the transition to us, it's hard to believe it was nine years ago. It is right? a little over nine years. Yeah, now. that's crazy. Wow. So nine years ago, you made that transition. We'd like to talk to you about generally why you made the transition and then what some of the differences you've seen, what you've experienced while you've been here. I'm objecting to the compound, compound question. question. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's all right. Yeah, but see, it I sounds do. rude when you object, but when he does, right, it's right, very exactly. nice. Okay, yeah. no worries. You know, I, 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 when I prepare witnesses, I always tell them, I like compound questions because then you can pick. Which you part want to you answer? Right? <laughs> See, keeping so, calm under pressure, like just you can ignore the rest. Yeah, let him come answer, back with it. Answer whatever one you well, want. Well, to go back, I started at a firm called Aldous Valley Cobb and Petrie, which was kind of medium law in those days. It was a firm. I think I was number twenty-two in the firm, and we were actually right here in this very building on the floor below, and we also had this very floor. No kidding. The 14th floor. Did, did you know that? Of what Jeff? was the Amerifirst building in those wow. days. I didn't know that. We brought you back to your roots. It, mm -hmm. it was very strange when I joined here. It's the 12th floor we were on, but we also had 14 because we had the Florida Justice Project up here. It was one of the charities that we supported back in those days. And that firm was absolutely marvelous firm. 
we were known as the rainbow firm in those days because we had, and this is a long time ago, this is 1985, we had people of all ethnic backgrounds and, you know, creeds and colors and so forth. And so we got a lot of very favorable write-ups in the DBR. We also had some very good and challenging work. But as time went by, that kind of firm stopped being economically viable in Mm. this market. And there were a lot of them in those days. There was good dozen firms like us Mm -hmm. which did commercial litigation. And so we ended up merging with a large regional firm, which, you know, for me at first was a a very good experience. The first, I guess, six or eight years was very busy. I developed as a lawyer, learned to take things calmly, I guess. But after that, the quality of the work began to decline. I mean, I was doing small cases I didn't feel that I was developing as a lawyer. I felt my skills were atrophying, if that's the right way to pronounce it. If you say it in that (laughs) accent, it is the right way to say it. I started to look around to make a change, and I interviewed with several. All of the firms I interviewed with, except one, were much smaller firms. Mm -hmm. And when I came here, I got very excited because of a comment Jeff made to me, which was I was talking about the business that I had. At that time, in those days, I specialized in representing banks. And just said, well, wait, if you have that much business, how are you ever going to do the work that we're bringing in? So I thought, okay, I sort of like the idea of that. And that's <laughs> why I accepted the offer made by this firm rather than a, actually a better offer made by a much larger firm. Because I'm glad to say that for once I was correct. <laughs> something <laughs> Because I could foresee down the road in the big firm, it was going to be like the experiences I had had in my prior firm. Right. Whereas here, I just got the feeling in talking to everybody. And a thing I particularly liked is that you brought in all the associates mm-hmm. to meet me. I think in those days we had about eight or nine yeah. attorneys here. Yeah. And so I sat across the table from all these young people, you know, and I got to talk to them about what you do here and so forth. And it excited me, frankly. So it's always good to hear. I don't think I ever heard that before. No, no. Um, But it's nice to hear what's funny. As an interviewer, when you're interviewing candidates, you don't remember a lot of interviews in the same way that when you're interviewing for a job, it's obviously a very memorable experience. And so over my career, I've heard stories of people who I interviewed think just events that never occurred to me that one sentence someone can make every sentence that you utter can be very meaningful to the listener it is and i think you always learn something in an interview not just about the firm or the person but you tend to learn things about yourself too because you're asking things which are prompting answers you know i never thought i thought that way right now i do anyway so i was excited and i wasn't disappointed When I got here, I was immediately flung into the case that Brett was alluding to at the beginning of our conversation. That was uh, arbitration, which was actually at the time we hadn't yet been sent to arbitration. It was Mm -hmm. pending before the, at that time, illustrious business court judge. Right. Eventually, I think he made the right decision and he sent us off to arbitration. And we did the arbitration literally three months after I got here. That was a law firm partnership dispute, right? It was. It was a law firm divorce. Without revealing any details. Of course not. (laughs) (laughs) We arbitrated in a law firm office, a big firm office, and we had an excellent arbitrator. I think I can mention his name. It's former Judge Howard Tesha, who is the go-to guy these days for mediations and big complicated cases. And we got a wonderful result. And immediately after that, I was flung into another enormous case, a case involving a large company which had been engaging in 
egregious fraud against governmental agencies mm. and <laughs> private corporations. <laughs> and so I this got is to kind take, of fun. You're making clues and we're having to remember. Yeah, we're having to remember the cases, <laughs> right? Yeah, exactly. I had to take 16 depositions in the period of about two weeks. And I was driving all over the place to mm -hmm. take these depositions. Yep. It was a little disappointing in that most of the people took the fifth. <laughs> no, that's the, uh, so you find that disappointing. I find that very interesting and sort of, you it's know. It's a win. All you just have to do win. is have the right questions. That's right. Just ask <laughs> yeah. the questions. The answers are irrelevant. Right. right. It doesn't matter. I can ask whatever I want. You well, take I, the fifth. I, wanted to, right. I know it helped our case, yeah. uh, you know, but I wanted to dig down into this and yeah, find of course. out, you know, what was really going on. Yeah. I think we got a sense of what was really going on by them taking the Fifth Amendment, but I hear you the litigator and you wanted to keep asking those questions. Exactly. What are some of the things you've seen? I know the quality of the work or the type of work, but what are some other things that you've seen being at a smaller firm that maybe you didn't quite see at big law? Well, I think here we tend to know more about what's going on on a firm-wide basis. Mm -hmm. You tend to know the people you're working with better because we are in an office of 20,000 square feet oh, or yeah. something. No, we have 7,500 oh, square feet. Sorry. Yeah, I forgot <laughs> about the new wing. Yeah, yeah. That's right. expanded <laughs> twice. <laughs> Which was suggested you name after a certain client involved in that first case. That's yeah. right. That's Memorial right. wing. That's right. Yeah. Because it's a, a small and intimate office arrangement, right. yeah. because we're all rubbing shoulders with one another every day, you tend to know the people you're working with much better than I did in a big firm. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think, look, I mean, it's just natural, right? We have one office on half a floor where you can get up and walk down the hall and see somebody and chat with them as opposed to a big firm, which, listen, I mean, there's definitely a place for them. There's definitely a market for them. And obviously, they're very successful operations. But you have multiple floors in a building. You have different departments. You have multiple offices. And so that person that you may be working with, you may not, especially in today's environment, you may just never interact with. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, you know, I mean, back in the old days, we were all three at big firms mm -hmm. at a time when we didn't have really video conferencing. Mm -hmm. So there were lawyers that I worked with for years that I never, ever right. met in person. But I remember the practice of looking them up on the website so you can at least see their picture. You'd have right. one picture. And so that's your image of that person. That picture might be. 10 years old too. And so you don't, you don't even know what they look like. Right. That's very true. And yeah. now you can invite them to a video conference. They don't always take you up on it. I'm finding more and more. Isn't that interesting? People like are people keeping are their camera off. Keeping yeah. their cameras off and they're just dialing in on a phone or That's on their computer. probably because their discipline of wardrobe has been relaxed. Yeah. yeah. And they're probably sitting there in a t-shirt and shorts. You know, I had this discussion recently. It's an interesting topic because I Mm -hmm. generally call people out because I say, we're on a video conference. Why shouldn't we see each other? But then somebody else said to me, well, he told me he leaves it up to his team, his employees. And he said, almost everybody, he said, usually I'm on a call and I'm the only one with the video on. Yeah. But he allows it. So, so we have a matter now where nobody, our co-counsel they're working with and other professionals in the case, they don't do video. Right. We're on. Yeah. But then we, not. so we just stopped doing it. We just stopped turning on our videos. And so right. nobody's on video anymore. I don't understand. Like it's a nice luxury to be able to see people. And also when they want to say something, you see gestures or if they're not paying attention, right. if they take a call or then you can wait. I, I think Jeremy could be right. That part of it is the relaxed nature of their wardrobe or maybe they're in their bedroom because that's their best setup. We've yeah. been on videos where someone's had their so. bed in the back. Maybe it's not made. I don't know. But I think that's part of it. But 
bringing back to the conversation of law firms and stuff, I mean, we just have the ability to, like you said, rub shoulders with everyone in this office and be able to really get to know each other on an intimate level when you're working together. Right, exactly. On cases. Yeah. yeah, and I think another point along those lines is that, and it's just the way we've structured it, is we tend to not have departments. Mm-hmm. So even if you might be a litigator, you'll work on cases. You may work with Brett on one case and Jeff on the next case or Jeremy and somebody else. So we try to split the teams up so that we don't have silos that you tend to have in large firms. You have departments, which is a useful resource for a lot of clients. Some clients need full service, especially M&A. M&A requires lots of different disciplines, but we have our people working. You know, we try to vary the teams up so you get to work with everybody. That's right. And one of the things I really liked when I came here was I started to go down to bankruptcy court. And when I got to announce to the judge, this is Jeremy Hart with Bast Amron, I have the pleasure today of representing so-and-so, there'd be a little glint of recognition. And the bankruptcy judges stopped treating me like a pariah because on rare occasions (laughs) that I'd had to go to bankruptcy court in my old life as an attorney, I'd always be asked, so who are you and who are you with? And you're not a member of the bankruptcy bar, are you? And usually I remember one occasion where the judge turned to the audience, all old time bankruptcy attorney said, well, that's an interesting argument Mr. Hart has made. Does anyone have any comment? And I'm thinking, <laughs> these guys. You against the room. Right, yeah, yeah, yeah. So one of them stood up and commented, and the judge ruled against me. <laughs> <laughs> I think the judge was just maybe was going to rule against you anyway, but wanted to prove a point. It could be. But it was nice to come here and be recognized as part of a firm that has a certain specialization, which uses that court a lot. Right. And I must say, you know, I've actually probably more than anything enjoyed litigating in bankruptcy court. Yeah, it's like the Wild West. It is. It was a learning curve. So it was a challenge to figure out. And you you go to the court and you hear these very experienced bankruptcy attorneys speaking in numbers. And you think, is this like mathematics? They're speaking a language made up of numbers and formulas. No, it's parts of the bankruptcy code. The code, yeah. I get out my little mini code and I see what they were talking about. Okay, It's yeah. like talking in pig Latin. Exactly. Like, Wait, what are they talking but about? The danger is you have the resources around you. We're not just sending you off into bankruptcy court without any bankruptcy advice. So right. some of those non-bankruptcy practitioners are looking at one code section, but they don't recognize that or may not recognize that that section interacts with several others that are also relevant and could guide you know the instruction there. So absolutely. you need context. Yeah, absolutely true. And I think in some ways, the reason I liked bankruptcy courts so much was that I had a certain amount of courtroom experience, trial experience in the state courts and federal courts. And a trial in bankruptcy court is a little bit different. Mm. And if you've had trial experience in state court or federal district court, it gives you a great advantage over bankruptcy attorneys who have not. Because you're looking down the road towards the ultimate goal, which is to prove your case. And you're taking discovery and you're looking at the law with that in mind. Okay. And a lot of bankruptcy attorneys, I think, and this may be an unfair criticism to many, they're just focused on this particular picture without thinking the entire case all the way through. I've seen an evolution in bankruptcy and the practice of bankruptcy that the lawyers have gotten, at least through my years of practice, have gotten better, more sophisticated in terms of litigating. Mm-hmm. But your conversation reminds me 
when I came over from the state attorney's office to my old firm and started in bankruptcy court, I went to a hearing to, I was asked to go and observe a hearing. So I'm in there at the time we had the visiting judge system still. And so there was a visiting judge on the bench and there was an evidentiary hearing. And I just came from the state attorney's office. I was trying cases before juries. There was a lawyer who stood up. There was a witness on the witness stand, two lawyers who I now know them, mm-hmm. right? Very seasoned bankruptcy lawyers. But you didn't know them at that no, time. No, I didn't know you them didn't at know that time, were, right? but everyone knew who they were and whatever. One lawyer was questioning the witness and held up a document, like a piece of paper and said, do you know what this is? And the witness said, yeah, your honor, I'd like to move that into evidence. <laughs> and the judge looked at the other lawyers at any objection. No objection, no problem. And I was like, <laughs> I just sat there. I just thought to myself, what is happening? Right, right. I think the thing most surprised me in bankruptcy court is the use of affidavits in place of direct examination. Yeah, well, that's an efficiency thing. And I actually, yeah. I am not necessarily opposed to it because to me, the dance and the art of the direct examination, lawyers flop over that all the time, right? It's far harder than cross. It is far harder than cross. So if you can put together a declaration that is tantamount to direct, mm-hmm. why not? And a bench trial. Yeah. No, no. In I mean, the judge trial. is going to read it. And, right. it's the same. and then the judge gets to determine credibility on oh. cross-exam. And then you have the opportunity to at rebuttal, redirect, right? at yeah. redirect and rebuttal. You also have the opportunity, you can augment the declaration with some direct, you know, you have that opportunity. So it is, I'm not opposed to it. It is much more efficient. Yeah. I like it actually. I mean, there are some cases and some judges that don't want them, but I'm not opposed to them in the right cases. No, I agree with you. It's just that it came as a bit of a surprise to me. You know, so when's he going to get up and do his stuff now? He's just passing a piece of paper. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Now there are some strange things, but I do think that there has been a substantial evolution over the years in bankruptcy court and with the practitioners here becoming a lot more sophisticated. There's been just a lot more complexity to it and the litigation as well. And I would say that bankruptcy lawyers, you know, that's a regional aspect of it because if you go to New York City, for example, in big firms, bankruptcy is not part of litigation. Bankruptcy is generally part of corporate. And then when there's a depot or Rule 2004 exam or a witness coming, you know, going to testify in a hearing, they bring in a litigator. So it's a bankruptcy lawyer and then separately a litigator. Whereas South Florida or other regions, most bankruptcy lawyers do the litigation. And maybe, like you said, maybe they have some litigation experience, but maybe not. Right. In New York, the litigator before the deposition is going 2000, what? Right. 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 I need to look that up. Oftentimes they're going to make it up with two lawyers at much higher rates to begin with, by the way, because it's New York. Whereas here you have to have both capacities. But to go back to the theme where we started, you know, this is what I really enjoyed about being with this firm is that we had challenging cases that I got to play a meaningful role in. Yeah. And as time went by, the cases got bigger and more challenging. Yeah. And I think I can say now my specialty is the big, complicated cases. And I get to do most of it on my own. And it's actually been very gratifying. I really enjoy it. Yeah, our practices give people as much rope as they can handle. And I think that's really a function. I'm not sure that every small firm is like that. You know, small, I guess is a relative term, but, you know, our approach has always been the best way to get people experience is to let them handle cases. And obviously we wouldn't let someone handle a case that they're not capable of handling. But I agree with that. And I think, you know, in this firm, you provide very, very good mentoring and you give the young people opportunities they might not otherwise have. And I can go back to, 
my time with a large firm. And back in those days, I had a fairly active banking practice. I got tons of, you know, small and medium-sized cases from regional banks. And one of the most gratifying things in my practice in those days was to just basically turn these cases over to young people in all of our offices up the East Coast of Florida. Basically, I would just analyze it. I'd do a call with the associate, and I'd say, it's okay, it's yours, run with it. Just let me know what you're going to do. <laughs> right, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, you know, when I left the big firm, I think it was around 60 emails from people I'd worked with, mm-hmm. which was very touching. Yeah. You know? And a Banking lot of them now in right. my old firm are partners, full equity partners who have a lot of responsibilities. I'm very yeah, happy about yeah. that. You've, I they, mean, they I learned that same you. way. Small. No, I, I, no, I'm I mean, not going to be presumptuous enough to say that. No, but, but at least in part, <laughs> right, I'm with you. But at least in part, based on your mentorship and your management yeah. of them and showing them how to handle things and how to handle cases and clients. And yeah. for sure, you've it's, definitely played a role. It's not always easy to do that. I mean, no. the way you suggested is, oh, you're just handing off cases. But as lawyers, we tend to have a certain way that we want things handled, especially if it's our client or it's a difficult matter. And so I struggle with that all the time. Letting go is very hard as a lawyer, especially if you've done things a certain way for a certain period of time, you're going to hand it off to somebody else. They may do it a little differently. It's also challenging to sometimes give something to someone junior that it's going to be more work for me as the supervisor to review it and revise it and guide them and all these other things. But that's how we groom lawyers. Yeah, it is. And to me, it was very important. And I mean, in all truth and honesty, I had so many of these cases at any time, there might be 30 or 40 of them. You know, I couldn't keep them straight, quite frankly. So I'd analyze them, hand them off, and I'd just say, just send me what you're going to file or call me up anytime and just tell me what you plan to do. We can talk about it. Right. So it was a great help to my practice, and I hope it was a help to them. They were all nice enough to say it was. So, As you reflect back on your practice, if you were advising a young lawyer or a law student right now, would you still say go to the big firm? Because I think the tendency is go to big firm and then go small. I think that's still true. It was true in my day, almost 40 years ago when I was in law school, and I think it's still true today. And I think the thing there is that if you're, doing well in law school and you're going to be a candidate for recruitment by a good quality firm and you go and look in our day they had a careers board with (laughs) three by five cardboard paper on it with the paper what's that (laughs) (laughs) with the job and the salary and you look at that and you notice that it's the big commercial firms in the largest cities which are paying the top dollar right and then you know there's a sort of hierarchy going down and you finish up with the personal injury firms which basically are looking for the insurance defense, right? Insurance (laughs) defense. In my day, insurance defense was a step or two above. I think it's come down a little bit from those days. Naturally, a law student says, well, I got debts and I want to make good money. So they go to the big firm. And I think for some people, it can be a good experience. But I'll tell you, you know, in my last years with my big firm, I would go in the library, yeah, because I'm old, I like to look at the (laughs) law and books. And the library was full of computers with young associates in there tagging documents. And that's what they did 12 hours a day. Yeah. Just, just doc tagging review. documents. Because yeah. we had some massive cases where right. there were literally millions of documents yeah. and somebody had to do it. And the client was paying, I think it was something like $350 an hour for this. Yeah. Per associate. Right. I think that's going to, it probably already has started. And I think it's going to even move further in the direction of using outside services for that. 
not yeah. spending 350 an hour for doc review and tagging. There's right. AI, artificial intelligence that's coming. Mm-hmm. There's firms in India that big firms are using to at least take the terabytes of data and whittle them down to gigabytes of data so then they can go through those. Well, and know? also smaller firms like ours, we can use lower technology. rate people and technology, technology yeah. to yes. do it more efficiently. But yeah. I think to your point about law students, I think the more sophisticated ones who can recognize that, yeah, I'll get good experience at a big firm or I may have a larger paycheck on day one, by the way, which when you divide it by 50 and take out taxes, the differences are marginal. The more sophisticated ones are going to recognize that in a boutique firm, they're going to get much more hands-on experience at a much faster rate than they would in a big firm. That's exactly the point I was trying to make, which is there are these associates tagging documents, and I certainly can't imagine a more bleak life than just sitting in front of a computer screen looking at documents. Right. How are you ever going to learn but he, right, the skills yeah, even of if being you don't a lawyer? Mind it, the problem is that's the problem. You're, you're not, not learning. learning. They're not getting into court. If you're doing doc review, you're not getting into court. That's exactly. a fact. Yeah. And you're not taking depositions. You're not writing you're not even or, preparing pleadings or motions. Well, yes. and candidly, what's the interaction with others in the firm, the more senior lawyers or partners mm-hmm. with their thoughts on strategy, on taking a deposition or going to a hearing. You know, if you're sitting in the library all the time, it's not every firm and every associate or every, it's not. But if that's the role or I'm going to stay in my office and I'm going to do research and prepare a memo, I'm going to send it off to the senior lawyers on the case and you're not interacting with them, how are you going to learn? I mean, I think one of the greatest things when I was young was I would get to sit around and just listen and observe. Mm -hmm. That to me is where as a young lawyer, you really learn. Yeah. Well, you said it before, is you know, even if you're not involved in the case, you're familiar with it here because mm-hmm. you hear everyone talking about it. And I think that's, Brett, to your point, that's how young lawyers learn. Even if they're not involved in the case, if they're in an environment, that's the other benefit of being actually in the office is you right. get to hear about other things that are going on and learn about it. And maybe how often do you, I know they come to me and you and Brett, Jeremy, yeah. when you're not involved in the case, but they want to pick your brain on an issue and you already kind of know about it because you've heard about it. That's so you already right. have some context. Yeah. And That's so true. we're kind of all involved in every case in some respects. Yeah, it is an intimate and intense environment in the sense, and I don't mean intense in a bad way. I mean, intense in a very focused, disciplined way of litigating the cases, but intimate too. Right. And That's important. So you said focused and disciplined, mm-hmm. and we touched on it briefly at the beginning, but I just want to touch on it briefly here as we bring this wonderful discussion to a conclusion. But how do you, over the years, right, because it ebbs and flows and you evolve as lawyers and humans as individuals, how do you stay so calm when you're taking fire? You're taking fire either from a client or opposing counsel because that is your reputation here, but I think also externally with those that you deal with in the community. As I said before, I think it's been about 30 years since I yelled at a judge. (laughs) (laughs) We we won't name names. We're not going to name names, and they're probably long retired. God bless them. But basically, you learn to develop a calm exterior because there is no point, and in fact, it is damaging to your client's case to show emotion of the wrong kind. Mm -hmm to opposing counsel or opposing party or the court for that matter. So although I may have a calm exterior, there are many times that I'm seething, I'm upset, I'm angry inside, but you've got to learn to keep an exterior which is calm. It works much better that way. Right. 
You know, yeah. people listen to you more. Mm -hmm. People take you more seriously. And certainly you're not going to offend the court by showing emotion in a hearing or something like that, which may well give the court, the judge, a bad impression of your client. Because everything you do as an attorney really reflects on the client. You're right. representing the client. You're the public face of the client. You have to really put on that public face. You have to take on a persona which is going to give your client the best advantage in the case. And that yeah. may vary from case to case. Right. The main thing is you must always be calm and professional about what you're doing. Yeah, I agree. I know I have a tendency around here, as I've seen you and I've had these conversations where we're both seething, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. But it's here. It's almost like walking out on stage. Like You have to show that calm, right? Because yeah. the clients are the ones who have the emotion when it's individual or a small business that they own, they're the ones with the emotion. We're supposed to take it away from them and let them have the emotion. And we're supposed to be the calming influence to give them that advice. Yes, that's true. And with a calm mind, mm -hmm. because that's what they're paying us for. That's what they want from us, mm -hmm. right? They want objectivity and knowledge. So that's what we give them. It's important, very important, I think, to understand your client, what their needs are and what their goals are in a particular case. And that's part of it. That's part of modeling the exterior, if you will, yeah. to match the client needs. But always, always got to be calm, professional, courteous. Right. And that's not to say, because I do think emotion is an important part of being an effective advocate, but I think you said negative emotion. You don't want to be right. angry and yelling no. and that type of no, stuff. No, but no. showing emotion and showing passion about yeah. presentation no. is an important yeah, part there's time of what for we that. do. There's We're time advocates. for that everywhere. There's time right. for that yeah. in deposition and mediation and court or in just a meeting. There's time for that, for sure, to show that you're invested. Your clients want to know that you care, yes, right? Exactly. That you're invested in it, not just that you're doing this for the paycheck and that you have their best interest in mind. And you have to, as Jeff said, and I agree, and you said, you have to show some emotion. You have to. Yeah, yeah. I mean, impassion for it, but it's not the negative emotion. Exactly. I think you have to be scared. I think you have to be scared in your cases. You have to wake up in the night sometimes <laughs> and say, oh my God, I missed that. Or I yeah. need to correct this first thing tomorrow. And that's part of the engagement that a lawyer has to have with the case. Yeah. Because they care. I often wish I could turn that switch off. Yeah, I, no, can't, I think we all do. You can't stop thinking about it. You're yeah. thinking about it in the shower from the moment you wake yeah. up until the moment you go but to sleep. But that makes you a better lawyer, Jack. It does. Because right. now you wake up at two in the morning thinking, oh, no. And you process. Yep. You right. process. Next morning you come in the office, you know what you got to do. You've already prepared it because you've outlined it in your head. Yeah, But exactly. that's, what, that's the care factor, right? That's what makes you an effective advocate mm -hmm. is that you care so you're up at two in the morning or always thinking about ways that you could do things differently or better or things that you may have missed or how can you handle this? That's caring. Yeah. And that's what the client's looking for, right? And that's what makes you an effective advocate. But you can't let the client, the court, opposing counsel know that you were in a panic last night. No, right. yeah. no, it's, no, no, it's, no, uh, no. One of the bankruptcy judges always liked to use the metaphor of the swan on the lake mm. that's very calm and beautiful and tranquil, but underneath there's kicking around and yeah, rocks furiously, and, and furiously right. scrambling. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of what litigation should be like. When you're in court, everything is smooth. The preparation might be chaotic at times and stressful, mm. but when you get into court or in that depot or whatever it is, 
your presentation should be smooth and carefully crafted. That's a really nice image. I like that. Yeah, yeah the yeah. swan on the lake. We are swans. This is Swan Lake. We should maybe rename <laughs> the uh, Don't podcast think anyone the would Swan ever, Lake podcast. Uh, mistake me for a swan. This was a wonderful conversation, Jeremy. Well, good. Well, yeah, I've enjoyed this. I enjoyed it, actually. Thank you, Jeremy. Yeah. And thank you, Nelson. Nelson. If you enjoyed this podcast, then please give us a five-star review. Refer us to your friends. Follow us. And if you have any questions about this episode or you want to hear cover another topic on another episode, then please let us know. Contact us in the information below. And we'll see you soon. For more information on this show and other resources, visit FastAmron.com and connect with us on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Instagram at FastAmron.com.